0: Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. In part one of our series, we talked about the CIA paramilitary officers like Mike Spann the first American to be killed in combat operations in Afghanistan, as well as the Special Operations Forces and our Northern Alliance partners that took the fight to the Taliban in northern Afghanistan shortly after the 9-11 attacks. But remember, the goal is al-Qaeda. The goal is bin Laden. And in December of 2001, they would be absolutely hammered by American air power. That's the focus of part two, American air power on the battlefield during the early stages of the war in Afghanistan. So today we have the story of Tech Sergeant Michael Stockdale, an Air Force combat controller who would make life a living hell for Al Qaeda during the Battle of Tora Bora. We didn't talk a lot about bin Laden in part one, but he's the whole reason we're in Afghanistan in the first place. It was he and his Al Qaeda fighters that executed the attacks on 9-11. Bin Laden was born in Saudi Arabia to a wealthy family, had a pretty nice upbringing. And around the time he was in college and shortly thereafter, took an interest in the war in Afghanistan between the Mujahideen and the Soviet Union. He would fundraise for certain groups for a while and before long traveled to Afghanistan in 1986 or 1987 to establish his own organization. It's worth noting there are rumors that the CIA funded or helped establish, in in some sense, Al-Qaeda around this time period. But this was a murky period of time in history and a murky place. This was the middle of the Cold War, and in order to maintain deniability for why American weapons and money is being found um, with these Mujahideen freedom fighters, there were a lot of middlemen. And there were certainly some groups the United States uh, preferred to work with through our ISI partners in Pakistan, but Al-Qaeda was not one of those. And in fact, while bin Laden did see combat in in a couple engagements, if you had to rank order the top Mujahideen commanders during this war, bin Laden's not in your top 10, not by a long shot. But it's not his battlefield experience from this war that makes the impact. It's that he's witnessed a miracle of sorts. Bin Laden was there when this ragtag Mujahideen army defeated the Soviet Union. And if he's generous with the impact, he might say that these Mujahideen precipitated the downfall of the entire Soviet Union. Now, as he's taking aim at his second superpower in his life, it helps to have a playbook. And part one of that playbook is going to look like what he saw happen with the Soviet Union. He's going to lure the United States into an endless and winless war to bleed us white of manpower and resources. At a high level, there is a flaw to this plan in that the while the Soviet defeat in Afghanistan played a role in the eventual collapse of of the Soviet Union. There were other political, economic, and cultural forces at play that just weren't mirrored in the United States in 2001. That said, bin Laden's not totally off his rocker. I mean, as we record this today, we've been in Afghanistan for 19 years. I don't know what the time period is to call a war endless or what the conditions look like to call it winless, I do know both of those terms have already been thrown around a couple times. It's important in this story to reiterate the differences between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. The Taliban are the local movement, regional at best, focused on governance in the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. And in this war, which they've been at war for a while, but things changed a little bit when the Americans arrived in the country. To win this war, they need to retain territory because any government without territory kind of loses legitimacy. On the other hand, Al-Qaeda has more of a global view. They believe that they've been at war with the United States well before the 9-11 attacks and that this phase is just that. It's a phase in a conflict that they expect to go on for decades to come. So Al-Qaeda does not need to retain territory. They just need to survive. And around the time of the fall of Mazar-e-Sharif that we talked about in our last episode towards the beginning of November, bin Laden starts to see this security bubble of sorts made up by the Taliban starting to collapse. And he starts to head to a more defensible position. He heads east towards Jalalabad, specifically an area around 30 miles outside of the city, a six square mile or six mile wide by six mile long stretch in a mountain range that backs up to the Pakistan border known as Tora Bora. And if you are going back to your how to topple an empire playbook, why not pick a battlefield that's already been tested? Tora Bora was famously a thorn in the side of the Soviet Union. It's an area they never really quelled. It's a natural fortress with steep mountains and cliffs with jagged peaks all around. There's few entrances in and out of these valleys and it's pocketed with caves. And over the years, Bin Laden and al-Qaeda have been reinforcing these caves, turning them into fighting positions. They are stockpiling weapons, and ammunition, water, food, medical supplies. From the outside looking in, it kind of looks like a last stand. And that's not crazy. We're seeing, again, this kind of bubble collapse around bin Laden, when we look at this and think that he might be holding up to hold out as long as he can, it kind of fits the storyline. In turn, this is why around 70 coalition forces, 11, around 70 coalition force members made up of CIA paramilitary personnel, a large group from the US Army's Special Forces, First Special Forces Operational Detachment, Delta, and others arrive on scene to hunt and find bin Laden. The Battle of Tora Bora will go from the 6th to the 17th of December. And in addition to the roughly 70 coalition force members on the ground, there's going to be approximately 1,000 Northern Alliance soldiers. It's funny to think that we don't really have these numbers nailed down, but such was the nature of the fight at the time. And an estimated 1,000 Al Qaeda fighters hold up in and around Torabor. This is the largest concentration of Al Qaeda that we've seen yet. And we won't ever see something like this again for good reason. Now of the forces on the ground, a big part is made up of the U S army's Delta force, but they're augmented with some pretty unique and highly skilled warriors from the Air Force's 24th Special Tactics Squadron, namely Technical Sergeant Michael Stockdale. Stockdale is a combat controller, and combat controllers are trained in a variety of skill sets when it comes to air ground integration, usually from a forward location. Now, him being on the ground is a game changer, as has been the case across Afghanistan. We've been bombing targets in Afghanistan since very early in the conflict. But having someone on the ground allows the bombing to change from somewhat strategic, think hitting stationary targets or camps that we've had our eyes on for long periods of time, to engaging enemy forces that are firing on friendlies. The reason for that is... At 10,000 plus feet, no matter how good the cameras are, a Northern Alliance soldier and an Al-Qaeda fighter and a Taliban member, and heck, at this point, the CIA and Special Operations Forces all look alike. I mean, we're wearing Afghan garb at this time. So without somebody on the ground saying, oh, that peak over there, that's Al-Qaeda, that's a target. That truck moving through the valley? That's friendly reinforcements, don't engage. It's hard to do that without somebody on the ground dictating and explaining the actual situation. Now, as Stockdale arrives in Tora Bora, there's an understanding that this fight is going to be a little bit different and that need for tactical air power is going to be front and center. Al-Qaeda is holed up in these reinforced fighting positions that are caves. Now, there were some reports at the time that these caves were, you know, reminiscent almost of some of the underground trenches in World War I with staircases and almost elevators and hospitals and sleeping areas that didn't really turn out to be the case. They certainly had adapted many of these caves to formidable fighting positions, but the idea that there were miles of tunnels running through all of eastern Afghanistan turned out to not really be true. But nonetheless, the Northern Alliance soldiers, the fighting force on the ground that's going to do the bulk of the clearing. I mean, we've got a lot of, of American service members there as well, but the main force, our Afghan allies, are gonna to have to clear these out one after the other after the other. And again, this is an area that the Soviets couldn't get their hands on get their hands around. It's gonna require a lot of precision, air power to soften those targets before we can move through, or we're all just gonna suffer massive. Massive losses. On December 6th, as the Battle of Tora Bora kicks off, Stockdale quickly moves to the front of all formations. Throughout this fight, he'll find himself repeatedly, um, if not at the very front of the lines, sometimes even out in front of friendly forces. It's there that he has the best view of the battlefield and can best dictate how the battle is shaping up. Shaping up. And as aircraft began to check on station, is the term we'll use, checking in with Stockdale to say they're there, he has to run through a couple items, keep track in his head. And these are hard to do from a location in the rear with multiple computer screens and peace and quiet and notepads. He's doing this on the ground while being shot at with small arms, heavy machine guns, RPGs, recoilless rifles, and 82 millimeter mortars raining down. As aircraft check in, Stockdale begins coordination. And throughout this fight, especially the first three days, that we're going to key on, key in on, it's going to be near constant. So as a plane comes on station, Stockdale is going to have to move them to the appropriate location because if you have two, four eight aircraft at any given point. You can't have them all flying in the same exact area. So the coordination is known as stacking is, is some of the terminology. You're going to stack them at different elevations or maybe move them vertically, east, west, north, or south to an area where they can still maintain situational awareness of the battlefield and be called in as needed, but just move out of the way just a little bit until I give you the call. As these aircraft come in, they're also going to be reading off something known as station time or play time, how long they're going to be around before they have to go back and refuel. This adds another layer of complexity to what Stockdale is doing, because not only is he moving the aircraft to the right position so they don't run into each other, but he has to recognize how long, say, an F-16 is on station. And if they come in with only 20 minutes remaining and have bombs on board, you want to utilize those before they have to leave, especially in a highly kinetic engagement like we're seeing at Tora Bora. So if he's got F-16s with 20 minutes of playtime and a B-1 bomber with 40, he's going to want to use those F-16s faster get those munitions off board so they can go back and refuel and then he can switch over to the B-1. You're starting to see the thought process that is just going to be constantly rolling with Stockdale. But it's not just keeping track of where the aircraft are and how long they'll be around, again, as bullets are flying, sometimes getting himself within even 25 meters of enemy forces. The whole reason they're up there is to conduct Connecticut strikes to facilitate that as each aircraft checks on and reads off their station time and, and where they're coming from. and They're going to read off their munitions, their payload. It might be GPS-guided bombs, like a GBU-38 guided bomb unit. It could be laser-guided bombs like a GBU-12. It could be guns, 20-millimeter cannons. And depending upon the target, Stockdale is going to be assigning different munitions from different aircraft at different times. For instance, a fixed fighting position, a machine gun nest stuck on the side of a hill in Tora Bora, is a prime target for a GPS guided bomb because you plug in the GPS coordinates and it's going to hit that location. A truck or maybe a cave entrance will use a truck. A truck moving reinforcements from one location to another that's moving is a prime target for a laser-guided bomb. Laser provided by Stockdale or others on the ground. Could be another aircraft doing that, but you can move the laser as the bomb is falling and kind of follow the target to hit it while it's on the run. And finally, should any Al-Qaeda members be silly enough to show their heads in daylight and move out of their caves, you've got gun runs. Usually, 20 millimeter cannons with a lot of these aircraft that can come down from above and just wreak havoc. So, depending upon the target, and depending upon the aircraft, and depending upon the station time, Stockdale is one after the other after the other coming up with these attack solutions. And I'm going to add in one more complexity here. He has to have the attack headings just right. If you're attacking something in the middle of the desert, you can drop a bomb maybe from any direction. Remember, bombs aren't just going to fall straight down. They're going to kind of glide in at an angle towards the target. Not quite 45 degrees, but it's lobbed at the target, really. Well, if you're attacking one side of a mountain and you release the bomb from the other side of the peak, you're going to miss that target by so much. You're not The guys that you're targeting might not even know you're looking at them. So Stockdale on top of all of this has to provide attack headings within cones is a term that we'll use because while these are smart bombs being utilized and either with a laser or GPS coordinates can zero in on a target, they can only do so much. Think of them more as correcting course as they're falling. So they have to be within a certain range, maybe 20, 30, 40 degrees when they're dropped to course correct in route to the target. So on top of everything else and even getting the right direction for an attack run, Stockdale has to provide these cones that are incredibly detailed to make sure these actually engage the targets. He's working this nonstop. It's all day, but then at night he gets a different asset on station. Something known as an Spectre AC-130 gunship. This is a C-130 cargo aircraft that is outfitted with a series of cannons, 25 millimeter, 40 millimeter, and 105 millimeter. That's a howitzer. That's what artillerymen use on the ground. They're stuck in the side of this cargo aircraft that circles low overhead only at night and hammers positions below direct fire. There are friendly forces and enemy forces all over Tora Bora. Stockdale on the ground for the first three days of this engagement is working the radios near nonstop. He averaged 13 hours in a row of constant air support. One mistake could see a bomb falling on the wrong side of a ridge line, or short, or long. One mistake, transposing one number, could kill Northern Alliance soldiers or any number of coalition troops. But Stockdale didn't make that mistake. And over the course of those first three days, he delivered over 600,000 pounds of munitions on top of the Al-Qaeda fighting positions. That's in over 300 individual strikes. Those Spectre gunships that I was talking about, five times he ran them dry on ammunition. They carry a hefty payload. Think about the death and destruction that was raining down for five of those gunships over the course of those three days to expend all ammunition. It's hard to imagine life on the receiving end of that. The Battle of Tora Bora would rage for about a week and a half. But these first three days just saw nearly unprecedented firepower at the hands of Tech Sergeant Stockdale. Due to his expertise, not a single American was killed during this battle. But over 200 Al-Qaeda fighters were, and another 60 captured. And for his actions on the battlefield... Tech Sergeant Michael Stockdale was awarded the Silver Star. In his citation, it calls out the, his incredible deadly destruction. The Battle of Tora Bora is considered an American victory of sorts. Northern Alliance, an American victory of sorts. But the small footprint strategy that the United States was employing was a double-edged sword. And nobody cared about getting bin Laden as much as we did. Not our Pakistani allies that had said they had sealed the border. Not the Northern Alliance soldiers that we had paid for loyalty. And in the midst of the Battle of Tora Bora, bin Laden would slip away. Moving through the lines, likely at night, into Pakistan. And despite losing hundreds... Of their fighters during this engagement, Al Qaeda was still on the loose in Afghanistan. The hunt would continue. US forces would hit target after target and at times would come into hand to hand combat with Al Qaeda fighters. That's next time on War Stories. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories.